Late one night on television, a comedian by the name of Louis C.K. was being interviewed when he was talking about how impatient and ungrateful we are as a people in America. And he kind of went on this little rant, and the catch line of what he was saying, I want to put up on the screen, is this. Everything is amazing, and yet nobody's happy. I want to share with you what he said, but I'm going to put the words on the screen, and you need to know that this is the made-for-TV focus on the family version of what he said. So if you go to YouTube to show your kid or your grandkid, you'd be like, the preacher shared this. It wasn't quite like it. This is the preacher version, but I want to share it with you nonetheless. In my lifetime, the changes in the world have been incredible. When I was a kid, we had a rotary phone. We had a phone you had to stand next to and you had to dial it. Do you realize how primitive that was? You were making sparks. And you would actually hate people who had zeros in their number because it was more work. And then if you called and they weren't home, the phone would just ring lonely by itself. And then if you wanted money, you had to go into the bank. And it was open for like three hours and you'd stand in line and you'd write yourself a check. And then if you ran out of money, you'd just say, well, I can't do any more things now. Now we live in this amazing, amazing world and it's wasted on a generation of spoiled people that don't care. This is what people are like now. They've got their phone and they go, ah, I won't work fast enough. Give it a second. It's going to space. Will you give it a second to get back from space? Is the speed of light too slow for you? I was on an airplane and there was this high-speed internet. And I'm sitting on a plane and they say, open up your laptops and you can go to the internet. It's fast, it's amazing. And then the thing breaks down and they apologize. The internet's not working. And the guy next to me says, oh great, this stinks. Like how quickly the world owes him something that he knew existed only like 10 seconds ago. And people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's always a horror story. They say, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for like 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. And then I say, oh really? And then what happened next? Did you fly in the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on a plane should be constantly screaming, wow, you're flying. You're sitting in a chair in the sky. Here's the deal. People say there are delays on flights. Delays, really? New York to California in five hours? It used to take 30 years to do that, and a bunch of you would die along the way. Everything's amazing, and yet nobody's happy. We live in this world where it seems to be like the primary spiritual gift of America is to complain. There's a social scientist by the name of Robert Hughes. He says we live in a culture of complaint. And these are the primary reasons we complain. We complain to get noticed. We complain to feel like that we matter. We complain to get something changed. And we complain to make sure that other people are as miserable as you are. A friend of mine uh, flies an airline that's not based in Atlanta, Georgia, and he says the unwritten motto of the customer service of this airline is, we're not happy till you're not happy. (laughs) And I think for many of us, that's, for many of us, that's kind of our motto. 
And it certainly is the way that Jonah was acting in the last chapter as we come to the end of this series and overboard. Everything's amazing for Jonah. Jonah has just experienced the largest, biggest, most miraculous revival in the, all of the Old Testament. Here is a city that is far from God, and in spite of the fact that he preaches the lamest sermon ever, this gives me hope, by the way, he preaches the lamest sermon ever, the whole city converts from king all the way down. All the animals are included in this redemption. And in spite of this, you would think that he would be happy. We think that what should be at the end of chapter 3 is, and Jonah glorified God for all he had seen and heard. But that's not how the story of Jonah ends. He begins to pout and whine, kvetch, moan, complain. And so let's see how the children of Peachtree retell the story. Jonah got into big trouble. So after he got to Nineveh, uh, he did what God told him. They stopped, and then it wasn't destroyed. God um, forgives the people of Nineveh. Jonah was really mad at the end of this because they were all having a celebration. He sat down by this palm leaf, and it grew, and then the next day later it died. God made the tree die. Jonah was mad because of this. Jonah was out in bouts. <laughs> My mom said that. I was sad about um, that one plant, one plant dying. dying. God asks Jonah why he was so mad about a tree and not about the people of Nineveh being lost. Reach for a Bible and turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to see how this last chapter concludes, and we're going to discover the pouting prophet and how all of his complaining winds up at the end of the story. It says at the beginning of chapter 4, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is a little bit of revisionist history you need to know. This is not what he said when he was still at home. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered, and when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's, and it's this, this in the original Hebrew probably, bald head, so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. 
And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? May God bless not only the hearing, but also the receiving and the putting into practice His holy word. So what happens here at the end of the book of Jonah is remarkable because it doesn't end like the way that we think that it will end. It doesn't end with that great repentance and conversion and revival. Instead, it's almost like the story takes a turn and zooms in on this private moment with God and with Jonah. In fact, it is called the book of Jonah, not the book of Nineveh and their great revival. And so it seems to me that what happens towards the end of this story is that God is showing great concern for the inner life of this prophet, this man who is going through the motions of external compliance for God. But if you were able to take an x-ray of his inner life, his soul, you would see something vastly different. I think what you see in this moment actually is an x-ray of Jonah's inner soul. And what you're about to see there, it ain't going to be pretty. And truth be told, if you were able to look within us, it probably wouldn't be all that beautiful in terms of our motives as well. So what kind of soul x-ray does God do in this private moment with Jonah? I think there are three questions that kind of get to the heart of what really is in Jonah. And the first question that this story asks is, hey, Jonah, why are you so angry? Six times in this chapter, it refers to Jonah's anger. Maybe you can relate to this little dude that's on the screen. Maybe you can relate to those moments where something drives you crazy. In fact, I want you to do me a little favor. I want you to turn to somebody right now. Don't think about it. First thing that comes to the top of your head, what's someone or something that drives you crazy? Ready, set, go. Turn to somebody and just say, first thing on your mind. I have no idea what you're saying right now. It's really awkward if a couple that are married turn to one another and say you in that moment. Um, maybe a lot of talk about extended family or, you know, the kind of people that voted for one person or the kind of people that voted for another person. I want to tell you, if you ask me my gut reaction to, you know, what something or someone that drives you crazy, I want to put an image on the screen of some snapshots of some people that drive me crazy. These are the people of the Las Vegas airport. And this city and these people drive me up a wall. We used to live close to, in California, kind of a commuter, kind of sized um, regional airport, not like a major hub. And so you always had to go through another airport to get anywhere. And I hated it when I had to go through Sin City's airport and just the bad behavior and the smell and just, uh, just everything about the Las Vegas airport for me just drove me absolutely crazy. But then you learn what Annie Lamott says when she says this, the surest way that you know that you've made God into your own image is that he hates all the same people that you do. <laughs> Can I have an amen? <laughs> and I have to come to terms with the fact that God loves the people of Las Vegas. It's a hard thing to believe in theology, but it's true. 
He loves them as much as he loves the people of Israel, as much as he loves the people of Nineveh, as much as he loves the people of Atlanta. Because God loves all of us. This is a little girl. I want to put her up on the screen. She's 10 years old. Her name is Miriam. And I'd love for you to hear her story because when she was 10 years old, this is a couple of years ago now, she had to flee her city in Iraq because ISIS was pursuing them. And she was interviewed as a little Christian by an Arab TV station. And this is what she said. واحنا موجودين هنا في المخيم لقينا بنوته فوجئت ان هي بتقول ان هي بتتفرج على ليش هيك واسمها مريم ازيك يا مريم زينه انت كيفك انا زي الفل انت بتتفرجي على ليش هيك فعلا ايوه حبي سات سيفن كيدز ايه انت فين بلدك جاي من قراقوش برضو ايوه من قراقوش انا طيب انت عندك 10 سنين مش كده ايوه طيب قولي لي انت بقالك قد ايه هنا في المخيم اربع اشهر ايه اكتر حاجه انت حاسه ان هي كنت بتحبيها في كراكوش مش موجوده هنا دلوقتي في المخيم كان عندنا بيت وكنا متونسين بس يعني هنا ما متونسين بس الحمد لله يعني الله سترنا قصدك ايه يعني ايه الله سترنا يعني الله حب حبنا و... وما قبل يعني يقتلونا داعش طيب انت حاسه قد ايه ربنا بيحبك صح ايوه ربنا بيحبنا كلنا مو مو بس ما راح اسويهم ولا شيء بس يعني اقول لله يسامحهم. Let's put that last image back up on the screen there. I won't do anything to them. I will only ask God to forgive them. There's a 10-year-old girl out there that's more spiritually mature than most of us in this room, including your pastor. Imagine being run out from your home and praying for their forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Jonah is angry because deep down inside, he doesn't like those people. And that's where his anger comes from. And God is exposing that on this x-ray. So the first question is, what makes you so angry? The second question is, what are you leaving out? You know, you can tell a lot by what a person says, but you can also tell a lot by what a person doesn't say. I mean, it's pretty interesting to go on a first date and to learn about somebody, but there's probably much more in what they have omitted when they've said on that first date than what actually they spoke of. 
It's interesting, Jonah um, goes through much of this when, uh, when he describes in his conversation with God, he quotes actually the most quoted sentence in the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Exodus, and what it says is, is that he said, I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you were abounding in love. But you, did you notice that Jonah didn't finish the sentence? Because the quote from Exodus, abounding in love and faithfulness. Jonah is a very trained, well-read, well-versed scholar, and he would have known that he was stopping short. In my marriage, there are volumes of not only what I say, but what I don't say to my spouse that reveals the inner state of my soul. And what happens when we get angry physiologically is that you get tunnel vision, like your brain can't focus on the big picture anymore and you can only kind of just hone in on one thing. And because of that, we leave stuff out. You know, we say in our society that we want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but most of us live like this cartoon where we say, I swear to truth, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, but we want to reserve a little bit of wiggle room, especially when it comes to ourselves. A couple of years ago in California, I was on a case. I had to be clear at the first service that I was not on trial in this case, that I was in the jury of this one particular case. It was a DUI case, and the, the defense of the defendant was what they call a character defense. He looked right at us and said, I would never drink and drive. And that was the cornerstone of his defense, his own credibility. And then the last thing that we learned before we went into the jury room was that he had already been convicted of another DUI. That would have been salient information. And it spoke volumes that he chose to leave that part out. But are you and I any different from that? constantly managing the impressions of others around us, that we're demanding that whole truth from others, but the way that we play the cards of our life is that we want to be very careful about what we reveal and that our life on Instagram looks very different from our real inner life. What are you leaving out? So the first part of the soul x-ray is why are you so angry? The second part of the soul x-ray for Jonah is what are you leaving out? He's leaving out the faithfulness of God. He doesn't believe that God is trustworthy. And then the third level of the soul x-ray. How do you handle the loss of comfort? When you have something and then you don't have something, That reveals a lot about your character, doesn't it? I mean, for Jonah, there was this leafy plant that grew above him. He's sitting there on the edge of the city. He's watching the city. Why is he sitting there watching the city? He's hoping that God's going to still rain down his judgment on the city. And so he's got his popcorn ready, and he's eating, and he's waiting, and he's very grateful for the shade that he has. He neither planted this 
particular leafy plant, nor did he tend to it, and he's grateful for it. And then the plant is eaten up by a worm, and uh, Jonah starts to complain about it. He complains such to the point, did you, did you notice that over and over again, he, he wishes that he was dead? Over and over again, he's, he's gone to that level of despair. Don't miss this. In chapter two, and at the end of chapter one, he's on the verge of death and he'll do anything to be alive. Now in a place where God's amazing love is everywhere, God's faithfulness is everywhere, and now he wants to die. Don't miss the irony of that. And so we get to the point where Jonah's here, the patron saint of those who are depressed. In verse 8, he said, he wanted to die. It would be better for me to die than to live. A couple of years ago, um, I got to buy a car. And this was the first car that I ever bought that I could afford where our kids were old enough, where I wasn't worried about the Cheerio and Goldfish assault of what that car would become with only a short time of my children in the back seat. It's like my kids are old enough, they're responsible. I'm looking particularly at the baptism families about this. And and so I'm excited to kind of get a grown-up car. And and don't you love new car smell? Uh, Actually, social scientists teach us that new car smell is actually the smell of all the toxins being released from all of the new things. So it's a wonderful smell. It'll kill you, uh, but it's a wonderful smell. So I'm driving the car. I've got my new aroma, and, 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 and I'm loving it, right? Like, it's so fun when you drive new wheels, right? That feeling. You know how you're extra careful when you're driving uh, a new car? And so I'm driving it, and I'm in this parking lot. And um, I'm in the parking lot and I'm kind of boxed in. I have to wait till somebody comes out in order for me to go in. And then right next to me is this minibus. And the minibus does not see me there. And it starts, I'm watching the, I'm watching the taillights come at me. Boop, boop, boop. And I'm screaming, no! And I'm doing this. And I'm honking the horn. And he's got music blaring, not a care in the world. Boom, T-bones me. I mean, I don't even have plates on my car yet. It is like 10 days old. And I get out and, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I'm nice about it, right? You know, <laughs> and uh, we exchange information and the person's insured. And so I go um, to, to get it looked at. And they're like, yeah, we're going to make it look brand new. And um, uh, it's going to take us six weeks. Six weeks? And I'm driving this kind of old rental car for six weeks. And, and, you know, I don't think my wife knew what was going on on the inside of me. I don't think my children knew what was going on. My congregation certainly didn't know what was going on in the inner life of me. Um, I mean, believe me, I told the story as far and wide as possible. But, um, but on the inside, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. Like the inconvenience of having to go through all of this. And then every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will assault you in a quiet time. I used to, I started reading Oswald Chambers when I was in college. And every once in a while, in certain seasons, I'll circle back to Oswald Chambers in a couple of days after the accident, and I'm really feeling sorry for myself, I read this. 
no sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. Ouch. Because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing him with our own self-interests. It causes us to open our mouths only to complain and we simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, never giving, never being satisfied. Thank you, Holy Spirit and Oz Chambers. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. When God removes the comfort How we respond to that is a very clear indication to the inner life of our souls. So the book of Jonah ends in kind of a strange fashion. Not only does it not end with, and they glorify God for this amazing revival in Nineveh, but it kind of, it's almost like it just falls off the edge of a cliff. Did you notice that we got to the end of it and God asks a question of Jonah and then it's like, that's it. In fact, some scholars are like, we must have lost the ending somewhere. Like somewhere along the lines, the ending of Jonah's out there and we don't know. I actually think it was written this way for a reason. That it just kind of hangs there. And just as God zoomed in on Jonah's soul, not just concerned about cities, but about individuals, I think God wants you to sit with the questions of this text. And so I'm going to put these three questions up on the screen one more time. Just quietly in your own personal meditation here. Is there any soul work that you need to do, some soul surgery the Holy Spirit needs to do? Why are you so angry? What are you not saying? What are you leaving out? And how do you personally handle those moments when you have something and then you don't have it anymore? We've called this series Overboard because God goes overboard in his love for us. But for many of us, we will be externally compliant with that love, but when it gets deep down in here, We don't want it to go that deep. Maybe in this moment you just want to jot down a word or phrase. Maybe there's an action step that you want to take because you know you're wrestling with some anger issues right now. Or you're managing impressions and leaving things out. Or maybe you know because when you have something, it's great, but when you don't have it, it's gone. You know there's something that you got to deal with. So let's take whatever that action step is for you and let's take it to prayer. Let's go to God. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger, but you're also abounding in love and faithfulness, God. That you're completely trustworthy. And so, God, I pray for everyone here, whether they're watching online or sitting in this sanctuary, I pray that you will do, just as you zoomed in on Jonah's life at the end, that you will zoom in on us and that you care about our inner life 
Not just that we say the right things and do the right things, but you care about our very souls. And so God will our anger and our omissions and our addiction to comforts reveal the kind of work that you still need to yet do in our hearts. And God, as you have been so overboard in your love and graciousness for us, help us to now extend that to others. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.